Well, hey, y'all, please take a seat. Everybody watching online, as well as those gathered here, welcome. We really are excited to be with you. My name's John. I serve as pastor here at the Springs. It is a joy to be hanging out with you guys. Because of where we are right now, we're working our way through a series, journeying through the book of Matthew. I found myself this past week thinking about something that I don't normally think about. Right? It's something that I've known about. It's a symbol that carries a lot of weight. It represents a lot of different things. But I've never really found myself thinking that much about thrones. Huh? Can y'all see that? Shout out Circle Arts Theater. Okay. You guys are not appreciative of the arts, but that's fine. No, I found myself thinking about thrones, like kings, queens, dignitaries, monarchies, all that kind of stuff. Who sits on them? What do they mean? It's led to a lot of thought, a lot of research, and just because I don't normally get to sit in one, I'm going to sit in one for a little bit. Here's what a throne represents. Here's what a throne can actually confer, can give to you. You could put the same thing as a crown. Power. Authority autonomy. It's interesting, maybe you've thought about that even when you've seen thrones, maybe you've seen a picture, anything like that, but they carry something. But there's something else, especially when you study them throughout history, that come with more than just power, authority, autonomy. Oftentimes, what is behind those things is a legacy of betrayal, murder, Deception. All the way from the really, 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 really shallow and silly versions to the serious. The shallow and silly versions. Anybody ever keep up? You're not going to admit to it. But with the British royal family, yeah, some of y'all totally know about Meghan Markle. Kate Middleton. Okay, maybe not y'all. Me neither. I get it. Right? But here's this whole thing. I looked into it this past week. You may not know this. I'm going to walk you through a few dynasties, their relationship to the throne. Queen Elizabeth sits on the throne. She's got two sons, Charles and Andrew. Charles is the heir to the throne. Andrew has always been in the background. Andrew has two daughters. Now, this is according, right, to UK gossip news, so you can trust all of this, all right? Two daughters, Beatrice and Eugenie. I don't know how that name came about, right? Beatrice and Eugenie. Beatrice in 2011 there was a scandal. She had her police escort removed from her. She was hurt. She was devastated. It was right about the time Kate Middleton is coming into the picture. Why was she upset? Why was the police escort removed? She was too far removed away from the throne. She wasn't a close enough heir to it. See, because when you get close to the throne, what happens? Power, authority, Autonomy. There was a distance. See, that's like a silly superficial one. You can go all the way back. One of my favorite ones, Cleopatra, right? Famous icon. You, you've perhaps heard of her, like leader, co-leader of Egypt. Here's what happened with her and the throne, right? Weird times, by the way. She married her brother so they could be co-rulers over Egypt. Over time, there was massive friction between them two. Over the throne, over who would rule, they went to war. Cleopatra and her brother 
had a younger sister. The younger sister makes a claim to the throne. The younger sister joins the side against Cleopatra. It's now two verse one. She doesn't want to give up the throne. What does she do? She seduces Julius Caesar and gets the might of Rome to come to conquer her brother, to conquer her sister, to keep the throne, power, authority, autonomy. But it matters who sits on it. Famous king. This was, this was an African kingdom. There was a good king. Right? He oversaw the land and he was raising up a prince. And this prince could not wait to be king. But the king had a brother. The brother made a plot to kill the king and to kill the prince. The brother's plot was successful in killing the king, but the son, he wasn't able to kill the son. The son ended up going into exile for some time until he came back. This is the dynasty of Mufasa, Simba, and then the bad guy Scar, right? See, we know thrones means something. It's not just a chair. It's power. It is authority. Here's the reason we're talking about thrones. We've been journeying our way through the book of Matthew. There's something unique about the book of Matthew. It is a claim to the people of God, Jews at this point, that Jesus is the king. Last week, we had this view and this discussion about Christmas and the story of a child born in a manger, but now we're going to get to see two different characters and how they respond to someone else having a claim to the throne, how they respond to someone else becoming king of kings. If you know this story, if you grew up around church or you've, you've been to a Christmas service, you perhaps know, today we're going to talk about the wise men in King Herod, or to say it differently, magi, or to say it even differently, we three kings of I don't know the next part, right? We're going to compare and contrast. How do they respond to this question? Who sits on the throne? See, it may be different. You might not be a part of a dynasty, right? You might not be part of like royalty by any means. I'm not. If you are, it'd be cool to talk to you about it, right? But here's the reality. The throne, it's symbolic to you and me in different ways. It speaks to this reality of what you want and what I want. We all want to be king. We all want to be queen. You have a desire for power. You have a desire for authority, you have a desire for autonomy. And just the same way we'll see the wise men and we will see King Herod wrestle with and answer this question, who ultimately, who sits on the throne? You and I have to ask ourselves that question too. There are times in my life where this creeps in. Even this week as I've been thinking out the throne, staff that came to me and they were talking to me, hey John, there just seems to be some changes in you recently. I said, well, what do you mean? Well, John, you seem to be a little more demanding, a little more controlling, a little more directing. And I said, what do you mean by that? Could, could you show me kind of what you're talking about? Well, we gave it away with some of the pictures there, right? It's this idea before my life, it's described by sitting in a normal chair. That's a normal John. But then over time, I have this tendency to what? I want to sit at the throne. I want what I say to go. I don't want to be challenged. I don't want to be disagreed with. 
Some of you, you're the same way. You're this way in your households. You are controlling. You are demeaning. You can even rationalize it by saying you're right. But it's led like a tyranny at times, not out of love. You can do this at the place of work where you are. You can call yourself the boss, or you can just be the employee. But you create this tone, and when people make you feel threatened, what is it doing? It compromises your sense of your kingdom, your throne, your crown. I, I get it. But here's the thing. If you're a follower of Christ, we get no throne. We are made a part of the royal family because we are adopted by the king. But his is the power. His is the authority. His is the throne. We're going to see today as we journey through Matthew chapter 2. We're going to do all of chapter 2, verses 1 through 23. We're going to look at this narrative story about how two characters, they respond to the throne. They respond to this call. Who is king of kings? Who is lord of lords? And while for them it takes place in very much a literal sense, I, I'm pleading with you as we work through the narrative, this is true of you and me. Yes, it's true in a different way. It's figurative. It is spiritual. But it speaks to something. Who rules my life? Am I king? Am I master? Or am I servant? Am I subject? Do I lead? Or do we, church, do we bow? I can't wait to see it. So if you have a Bible, turn with me. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 2. Again, I'm going to read through all of the chapters. So it's 23 verses. It's going to take us a minute. And then we're going to take a step back. And we're going to look at the characters of the wise men and then the foolish King Herod. We're talking about today who sits on the throne. They meant this in a very literal sense in much of it, as well as figurative and spiritual, but they had additional layers to it. And we're going to see how they represent, they show. There's really two answers to the question, who sits on the throne? The wise, they recognize Jesus is king. Kings get thrones. Queens get thrones. The wise, they recognize Jesus as king. We'll see that through the wise men. And then the second, the foolish reject Jesus as king. They don't come and bow to him. But they, we, we, we do all we can to make it feel like people bow to us. That's what we're going to look at. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. It's an amazing story. This narrative takes place arguably anywhere over three to two uh, years worth of time. There's going to be three different location changes. We're going to start in the city of Bethlehem. And from Bethlehem, that's the birthplace of Jesus. He's gone from a manger in a stable, right, if you know the story, to now he's residing in a house. Probably, and people estimate, anywhere from three months to two years has gone by since that moment, he's wrapped in swaddling clothes, laid in a manger. And wise men will come from the east. From there, though, this King Herod who's going to oppose, this despot and ruler over the province of Jerusalem under Roman Empire, he's going to threaten the Christ child. Joseph and Mary, they will flee and they will journey to Egypt. That's going to be our second location. It'll be in Egypt. That's about a 90-mile journey that they're going to hide out. They'll hide out for about two years. 
and then they're going to come back. But on their way back, they won't be able to return to Bethlehem. Why? Another king would want to take the life of Jesus, and so they're going to go to Nazareth. So that, that's our location changes. That's how we're going to set this up. So grab your Bible, read with me, all Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, so that's our first character, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. There's our second. The wise men were saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, this representing the religious leaders of the time in Jerusalem, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. This is a reference, by the way, to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. I'll explain why in a moment. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Before we continue with the narrative, here's what's going on. Wise men from the east have come, and they have seen a star in the sky. We'll talk about why they would have thought that was connected with the Messiah, but they begin to travel, right, west towards Jerusalem. As they come, King Herod hears of them. They stop in. Herod says, wait, wait, you know of this king too? Tell me where he is to be born. There's a reference to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Why is that reference in here? Stepping back, the book of Matthew is written to a Jewish audience, Throughout this narrative, there's going to be four different references to Old Testament prophecies. Why is that? And this is the first one from Micah chapter 5. It's because Matthew's writing to an audience and he's saying, the foretold king, the Messiah that was promised, this is him. This is him. Every time you read it, it is a reference to this idea, you can trust his word. Then Herod, he summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them. I love that verb. Ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. If you know the story, that's a lie. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. We don't have enough time to talk about it, but this should be what marks followers of Christ as they are pursuing, they are approaching the glory of the King. Great joy. Well, let's keep going. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary and his mother, they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, now let's keep going. Now you're going to have the location change. We're in Bethlehem. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose, he took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. 
Out of Egypt I've called my son. Second Old Testament reference. This is a reference to Hosea chapter 11. Again, why is Matthew doing it? He's saying, this is the foretold Messiah. They said he would come. He has come. Fascinating thing to think about, though. Mary and Joseph, birth of the Christ child. Literally, Jesus, he's at best an infant in this time. And appearing in a dream, they're told, flee the country. Why? Someone is coming to kill your boy, and likely with your boy, you. It continues on. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he repented of his sin. He realized Christ as Savior child, and he went to worship him in honor and in faith. No, you guys asleep? Still with me? Okay, that's not what happened. When he saw he had been tricked, he became furious. And so what does he do? He escalates. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained, again, still love that verb, ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Reference number three. This is Jeremiah 31, 15. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, who was a, seen as a mother of Israel, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Third location. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go back to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. He rose and he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, that was Herod's son, was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and he lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. There's so many things that you could teach out of this chapter. You could teach about the providential path of God, how using the evil hearts of broken men, he is directing his people in faithful steps, how every moment, what is he telling Joseph? He's not telling Joseph the end destination. He's not telling Joseph how it all works out. He's going from location to location, moment to moment, depending on him. And every time there's fear, every time there's threat, and in the entire time you could talk about how Joseph, how Mary, were they wondering, what are you doing, God? Why would you lead us this way? If he is your son, if he is the king, stop them, end them. You could teach all of that. You could teach the amazing faith that was in the heart of this family to protect their child. Having an idea of what was true of him, the Messiah, the promised king, the savior, but absolutely, I imagine, carrying a doubt, carrying a worry. But I want to go back to something that's even more primary. I want to go back to, again, addressing who sits on the throne. See, for Mary and Joseph, they recognized, even in their child, this child that I protect will come and be provision for my sin. They recognize this boy as king of kings, lord of lords. 
But then you see two different responses from the wise men and King Herod. And here's what I will put before you as we, as we begin to talk through those. Those are the symbolic references of our responses, of you, of me. They are those who recognize Christ as king. They surrender, they bow. And there are those who oppose. Maybe it's not an opposition like Herod, but trust me, it is an opposition. So with that, I want to look at who sits on the throne. I want to see how this question is answered by two different characters in this narrative. So as we ask ourselves who sits on the throne, the first way that we want to talk about this is this idea, the wise recognize Jesus as king. The wise recognize Jesus as king. In order to see that, though, I need to share with you some background on these wise men. You might know them as as called the Magi, or we referenced it before, three kings. Tradition holds that there were three of them. Now, we don't know that for sure. Why do we think there were three of them? They gave three gifts, right? Church tradition has a name of them, Gaspar, Melchior, and Balthazar. That's part of the reason why we think there was three. Maybe that's true, but Scripture, we're not entirely sure. They did not arrive the night of Christ's birth, despite pretty much every Hollywood production, including the animated one called The Star, that I highly recommend to you all, right? They did not arrive the night of Christ's birth. It was likely months, maybe even short of a few years. They had come from the east, where was that? that? That was likely Persia, or to say it differently, modern-day Iran. It would have been about an 800 to 900-mile walk. It would have taken them time. You have to wonder, right, why were they called the wise men or magi? Right? They're coming from Persia, but they had an understanding of something. You could call them like a soothsayer or even a magician, or what they did, almost like astrology. They would study the stars. But why did they know that a star arising in Israel would be symbolic? Why did they know it should be different? Well, if you study astrology or if you know an astrologer, you know stars don't just really appear like that. It's not how that quite works. So there's that. But if you know your Old Testament, and we're not going to go all the way into this, they, by all accounts, likely knew of a Jewish prophet, a man of God, by the name of Daniel. You see, their people had come and conquered Israel and taken all of Israel's faithful leaders, including Daniel. Daniel had so demonstrated himself to be a man of God, capable leader, competent in every way, that he was put in charge of the Magi. And he told them these prophecies. He told them the word of God. So there were these men. They were not Jews. They were at best Gentiles. Huge racial tension between them. And what's the first thing you're seeing? Who's coming apart from one, Mary and Joseph? And then if you know the story, the shepherds come next. But then it is the wise men. It's the wise men. They'd studied the stars, and when they saw this one moving They connected the dots. Amazingly enough, they trusted this, and they walked 900 miles. My family, they live in uh, Georgia. I tracked it. For me to go home, that's 1,000 miles. Mm Mm-mm, ain't walking that. But they, as an act of faith, 
likely in opposition to the own pagan rituals of their homeland, likely knowing the prejudice they would face in Israel, they came to worship a king. So what takeaways are there from, from these wise men, those that recognize Jesus as king? I've just got three quick ones. They believed God's word. Imagine that. They knew the Old Testament word of God, and they trusted it so much, they came. Verse 2, it says, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Let me ask you, they're willing to risk life. They're willing, and you know the story, they're going to run from Herod. Why? They trusted, they depended, and they believed. We hear, we hear, and right now I'm talking to Christians. Do you trust? Do you depend? Do you believe God's word? See, because here's the thing. What claims that Jesus is king? What makes his divine appeal to kingship? It's his word. If you don't trust his word, you won't trust him as king. Wise men, wise women, wise human beings trust the word of God. The second thing, they bowed to Jesus. Those who recognize him as king, they bow to him as king. In our culture, like to bow, it carries such this like negative connotation. But the word I'd put to it is it's privilege. He's like the big brother that you love to follow because you share the same father who's adopted you into a family of royalty. You're not jealous. You don't backbite. You don't do that. There's moments where you don't understand. There's moments where you absolutely ask why. There's moments where you say, I need you to help me. But the heart posture is you bow. Verse 11, talking about the wise men, they go into the house. They saw the child with his mother. They fell down and they worshiped him. It's amazing. Worship here, you can literally translate it to bow. It has this posture that upon demonstrating the king, these men fall down. They prostrate themselves before God and they bow. What does it mean to bow? To surrender, to pay homage, to acknowledge who has the power, who has the authority. Third thing, I love this, they bestowed gifts. What do the wise do when they recognize Jesus King? They bestow gifts. These kings showed up with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, we don't know exactly why those three things, but scholars speculate. They talk about that gold was a gift given because it demonstrated the deity and the purity of Christ. They talk about frankincense being given. It was incense. It was meant to show how Jesus' life was this fragrant offering to God on behalf of the people. And the third thing, myrrh. You know what myrrh was used for? It was an embalming fluid. Myrrh meant to point to his death and his sacrifice. They came and they gave tribute. It speaks to this idea that so many times you and I, even if you believe in him as king, you and I wrestle with what parts of me and my life do I hold back? 
What parts do I keep for myself, or do I come and do I go all in? This can be everything from my honest obedience, my entertainment choices, my my finances, the health of my marriage, how I come and I treat other people. I want to hold that back. I want to hold that back. What if you and me, we really recognize that he is king He doesn't just want the part of you that's used to showing up on a Sunday morning or tuning in online. But he really died for you and he loves you so much that he wants all of you. And if you were to trust him with like the really hard parts, the parts that you don't want to give up, the parts that right now you've just become so used to the brokenness, the anxiety, the pain, the confusion, the control, it's like a fish that swims in muddy water because that's all they know. But what have we really said? I'll give you all. What would happen? It speaks to this theme of what wise men do when they recognize Jesus as king. They fight to give all of themselves. They believe. They bow. They bestow. It speaks this idea in the Christian journey of an abiding faith, of a faith that fights to remain positionally before the throne, bowed, This past week, I had the joy, I listened to a uh, testimony of a member here in our body. He came and he stood on the stage on Monday night and he shared what God had done in his life. Part of his story, and he doesn't mind me sharing with you, his name's Joshua Dodson. My first week here, and I moved, I, I became a part of the Springs about three years ago. My first week here, I was a part of a group where we prayed for him as a father and as a husband to repent to turn from his sins drastically, and he had many. Despite the reality of just chemical addiction in his life, what that had been on and off since his childhood, a passive environment towards the care of his home, neglect of his family, and we prayed. It was amazing, though, because prayer works, and there's a king in heaven who runs after people like him, like me, like you. Last week, I walked in here, and I'd forgotten that Joshua was going to share his story. And as I walked up, I can remember that moment I saw him on the stage, and between me and him was his wife in the background swaying as she holds their newborn. I remember praying with her for him. And he was up on this stage, and he allows me to share with you an aspect of his story that I think illustrates this point of what happens when you and I really view him as king. We don't give part, but we give all. He said this in his testimony. He wrote, even after a year and a half of no drinking, so he's experienced a sense of sobriety in his life. He said, I still experience temptation, but my response to that temptation has changed. Instead of giving in, I'm able to reach out to my accountability partners, and he puts a slash, his community group, right? Springs, we do these community groups here. He said, they point me back to Christ, his truth, and we pray I love this part. This is what stood out, and we're going to talk about a few things. I've been to three to four recovery programs, and I've discovered the secret. The secret is an abiding relationship with Christ. I can do nothing substantial in my life without him. I am a beneficiary of grace. I was an enemy of God. He doesn't say this. He wanted his own throne, his own kingdom, his own way. I was an enemy of God. So was I. I love sin, hated the light, but now I am a son. 
He says his soul was bankrupt. I love his imagery. But now I have eternal riches. As an adopted son, my heavenly father is good to continue to grow me, change me, exposing new areas where he wants more of me. Because be assured of Joshua as well as assured of me, there's absolutely room for him to grow. He continues to show me, though, how a daily dependence on him will inevitably expose where I can still take ground, whether that be pride, anger, or thought life. There's so many ways I see God continuing to pursue me. I love this. Sobriety was just a beginning. A few key phrases that I want to pull out of that to demonstrate this point of what it means to recognize Jesus as king. Because when you do that, guys, again, here's the premise. You're bowing with all of you. It's not just part of you. There is this truth where though you are a Christian, maturity draws you from belief to bowing, from bowing to giving. But here's the heart of what he says, talking about what it looks like to recognize Christ as king. In moments of temptation, what does he do? He reaches out to other people that want to serve the king. He said, they point me back to Christ. His truth, we pray. Favorite line, he says, I have discovered the secret. What's the secret? An abiding relationship with Christ Jesus. He says, it's a daily dependence on him that exposes where there's ground to take. And I love this. I see God continuing to pursue me. Sobriety was just a beginning. Did you notice the trajectory of even his heart when you come and you bow before the king, you recognize him? Yes, you can start with the external and it works its way internal. He's always after the heart. He does not want to force you. He did not force those wise men to walk into the house to see Mary, to see the Christ child and force them to fall on the ground and bow. They did it, and what was their emotion as they approached the house? With exceeding joy. Like, what if you really felt that way about Jesus? Like, what if you really felt that way about honoring him to where even as you come, your your pursuit of him, it wasn't marked by a supposed to or a shame or a guilt or an obligation, but love, Like, like real love. He's not a tyrant, but he is king. And when you acknowledge who sits on the throne and you fight to recognize him as king, it brings change, joy. Whether it's chemical addiction or control, whether it is alcoholism or anger, sexual brokenness, self-righteousness, you pick it, he brings freedom. But freedom comes to those bow. And they bow to the throne out of love, not because their parents said to, not because they're told to, but because he so loves you that he died for you. But not all want to bow. Not all want to recognize. Many, and this is where some of you are today, and that's absolutely okay. We love that you're here, but many sit not in a heart of recognition, but with a posture of rejection. So now I want to look at King Herod. I want to look at King Herod to see how, yes, wise men recognize Jesus as king, but the foolish reject him as king. So we're not going to go back and and read through the whole thing, but I do just want to pull out a few thoughts as we look at Herod's life. First off, a, a little background on him. Your Bible, it has a few different Herods in it, right? 
there's a few different Herods that are mentioned. This Herod, his dad was actually appointed governor over Judea by Julius Caesar. Herod had inherited from his dad. Now, under the Roman province, they came to him, and they actually gave Herod a title. They gave him the title King of the Jews. You know anybody else that got that title? Yeah, his name's Jesus, okay? So immediately, when you read King Herod, all of a sudden, the claim to a throne or King of the Jews is immediately what? A threat to his throne, his kingdom, his way. Herod, in his life, he did do some good things. Right? He helped rebuild and reconstruct the temple. He was known for building a lot of different things. But he also did some amazingly cruel things. This cruelty was driven by something. In general, and you see it even in our story, he would do anything to protect his throne. Anything to protect his sense of power, authority, or autonomy. And we all know autonomy, right? It means I do what I want when I want, doesn't matter what you say. Herod was jealous, fearful, and he was often paranoid. There's an example, there's actually quite a few of them. He had his high priest murdered. Why? He was jealous of him. His high priest was actually his wife's brother. Imagine the dinner table that night. Hey, honey, how was your day? It was all right. I had your brother killed. That would be an awkward dinner, okay? That's what that would be like. Good news, he then later killed that wife. Killed that wife, killed her mom, and then killed two of their sons. Why? He had a son he wanted the throne to go, through, go to, Archelaus, and he didn't want anyone to threaten the right to the throne. Herod was a bad guy. What are some takeaways from King Herod that show how the foolish reject Jesus as king? And when they reject, I'm not saying they go on literally like a killing spree. But you can come. It is in vogue. It is culture. It is celebrated to reject Jesus as king now. Just because Kanye put out an album about it doesn't mean the world changed on it. God, we got to look into current events with you all sometime. All right. What's true about how the foolish reject Jesus as king? One. Herod did not believe God's word. Herod was even told of this before. Herod, he was considered Jewish, but really he was an Edomite, if you know your Old Testament. But do you remember in the story, he calls for the chief priests and the scribes. Those were the religious leaders of the day to come and say, tell me from God's word where the Christ child is to be born. They reference it. They are the ones that read Micah chapter 5 to him. They are the ones that tell him, here's where he's to be born. Herod doesn't use that as a chance to recognize not only the truth of God's word, but the authority of Jesus. He uses that to almost set a GPS coordinate for where he could go and he could take the life of the child. Foolish people do not recognize the truth of God's word. Two, what's another thing? Herod obviously did not bow before Jesus. It seems very simplistic and obvious. But the wise men came, they fall before they bow, they give tribute and recognition as king, and what does Herod do? He sends people out to find Jesus. 
as an insurance policy. He has children murdered under the age of two. How many kids? Historians think it's anywhere from 10 to 100. Why? Bethlehem, it was not a large town. But, but the scripture there, it gives reference to not just Bethlehem, but in the surrounding region. They don't know how far it went. He did not bow. He did everything he could to hold on to his own power, his authority, and his own rule. See, there's this truth that when you want the throne, we at times will kill to keep it. Now, I could use multiple examples from history. I've already used a few. But here's the thing. When you feel threatened in your marriage, you use words to bring destruction so you can gain control. When you have friends that come to you and they say, hey, I want to sharpen you. Hey, I want to help you. Hey, I want to challenge you. You and I, what do we do? We bow up, we get defensive, and we all of a sudden go on the attack. It may not be physical. I pray it's not. But you and I, out of brokenness, protect our throne. I don't like when it's threatened. You don't like when it's threatened, but here's the thing. It's not ours. Herod didn't know that. That Christ child had come to die for that King Herod, but Herod never knew that. It speaks to this idea, guys. You can either worship Jesus as king, right? And this is the controversial thing, and so if you don't believe in Jesus, I I get it. I'd love to talk to you after. You can either worship him as king. You can bow. You can surrender. You can believe. You can bestow. You can do that. Or ultimately, you keep yourself as king. You keep yourself as queen where you get to decide what is true. You get to decide how you live. You get to decide what is right. You get to decide where you go. You are your own God. You and I, though, we make terrible gods. This is part of the reason why, even in American culture, why we continue to make ourselves the focus of everything. We are increasingly sick what are some common statements that you could, you could hear? Hey, it doesn't matter what you've done. Just love yourself. These are half-truths. It doesn't matter what you've done. All you need to do is forgive yourself. These are half-truths. It doesn't matter what you've done. Just accept yourself. If they don't accept you, that, that's them. It doesn't matter what you've done. Praise yourself. You're a king. You're a queen. Worship. If they won't worship, it's on them. You look out for yourself. Why? No one else will. What's the common theme of all of those? Yourself. When you do not bow to the throne of Christ, you create your own kingdom. You sit on your own throne. And what is the epicenter of the throne? It's about you. Herod had this crazy story as I studied him. It was tragic. He had so alienated all the people in Jerusalem that at the end of his life, he knew he was about to die. But he knew, no one's going to come to my funeral. So what does he do? Megalomaniac. What does he do? He literally has multiple civic, outstanding leaders in Jerusalem arrested. He made a decree that upon his death, they would be executed. Why? So that the day that he died, 
when people said there was weeping in Jerusalem, they would think it would be for him. When you come and you make yourself the center of things, it brings dysfunction. I'm not saying your pain is like King Herod. But what I'm saying is there is a king that has come to set you free. You and I don't make great rulers. We don't make great kings. He still makes us a part of the royal family, though. He still comes and he calls us children of the king, prince, princess. We are still invited to the reality of an internal inheritance, and we don't have to do anything. We don't have to come. We just have to believe that literally he loves us and he died for us. But from belief, what do we do? We give up the throne. There's a lot of things that you could take away from Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to let you guys go back. You can study it more in depth. You can navigate the truths of it all over. But there's an amazing principle that you see standing out. Besides the faithfulness of Joseph and Mary, you see the wise recognize Jesus as king and the fools reject him as king. It matters how you respond. I'll close with this, is I thought about the throne this week and what it means, the ways that I try to hold mine, look out for mine, my family, my job, the springs, my friends, my community group. You pick whatever you want, the ways that you can come, and man, you count your bank account, your life is in your status, your relationships, your friends, how people perceive you. You're terrified that your spouse would say something negative against you publicly because it just cuts you to the core. Why? Because it's your throne, and you're held and enslaved by insecurity not freedom, or the moments where you love Christ, you want to follow, and you're growing in joy, like people are looking at you, and they're seeing your life change. Why? You're getting healthier. How do you get healthier? You continue to give him the throne. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. But this week, I had this thought about what happens when you become a follower of Christ, and it really flowed from what happened with Jesus. See, theologically, here's what's true. Before Jesus came, he ruled and reigned in heaven. You could go and look at Isaiah chapter 6 if you literally want to see what Jesus on the throne looks like. It describes him as literally filling up the expanse of all that was visible for Isaiah. You can go look at that. But Jesus leaves the throne to be born in a manger. He leaves the crown to come and die for a people that would mock his claim to royalty, that would replace the throne for a cross, that would replace the crown for a crown of thorns. He would die for them. He would die for me. See, there's an amazing thing. As a follower of Christ, you recognize this truth. Jesus sits on the throne, but there's something else. It goes more than just recognition. You recognize that not only he sits on the throne, but the throne is no longer ours. What is our life to be? Our life is meant to be a sacrifice. It's literally meant to be the biblical language it would talk about is laid down on an altar. We not only recognize he gets the throne, we not only bow, but our life, it's meant to be poured out. And as you do it, what do you do? You find life in the kingdom of heaven. You find life following the King Jesus. You find life knowing, I don't want the throne, even though I want the throne, keep me from the throne. It really changes you. It doesn't mean life's just always easy. 
It doesn't mean it's not filled with complexity or doubt or wonder. But it means you know who the king is. He's a good king. He's died for you. He loves you. Believe that. And if you believe, this passage pleads with you and me, give him the throne. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. Just what you do, even as you teach it to me, you teach it to us. Would you help us to lay that down? Would you help us to give that to you? We sure do love you. Would you help us to love you more? And God, those who don't know you, those who are wrestling, would you change hearts? Would you make wise men out of Herod's just as you did with me? We need you to do that. We love you. Amen.